Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is part two of our series on the impact of immigration. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with economist Jennifer Hunt about the findings in a big study by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine on the economic and fiscal impact of immigration on the U.S., Now, you might remember a previous episode with Mary Waters, in which we covered the integration of immigrants to the U.S., also based on a report from the National Academies. But this week's episode covers a different National Academies report, in which we focus exclusively on the economic impact of immigrants to the U.S., and in a future episode, we'll cover the fiscal impact. And again, this series does have something of a home country bias as it focuses on American immigration and... Although some of the themes we discuss apply to immigration anywhere, I just thought I'd give you a heads up, especially for our overseas listeners. This week's episode is a bit U.S.-centric. But without further ado, here is my chat with Jennifer Hunt on the economic impact of immigration. Enjoy. Jennifer Hunt, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been studying immigration economics for a long time. When did you first get interested in this particular topic? Well, actually, my interest in uh, immigration stems from my upbringing. Uh, I grew up mostly in Geneva in Switzerland, which is a very international city, and that's led to a fascination for me for all things international. In my international school, in fact, uh, because I'd migrated only three times, I was considered a more sedentary member of of the international school. And so I'm interested in, in cultures across the world, languages, migration, trade, and generally connections between people across the world. So I think it's natural that, that I should be interested in immigration. So you've been yourself an immigrant for a significant part of your life. Uh, well, really since I was one, actually. <laughs> and in which countries have you spent time? Well, I was born in Australia, and then I moved to Switzerland, and then we moved back to Australia, then back to Switzerland. Uh, then I came to the U.S. for college, but uh, somewhat recently I had a 10-year uh, interlude in uh, Montreal in Canada. I have a question that might sound a little bit loopy, so bear with me for a second. Uh, it kind of melds the scholarly on the one hand and then maybe like the personal or philosophical on the other. There's one point that I think even advocates of more immigration and people who uh, want uh, immigration levels to be restricted from current levels can agree on. And that's that when we discuss the economic impact of immigrants, yes, we're talking about economic inputs and all these variables, but we are also talking about human beings. So rather than just focusing on wages and productivity growth and economic growth, we're also talking about people who are all vulnerable in a very specific way. So we're all vulnerable in some way, right? We all have the psychological programming with which we approach the world, but immigrants by definition are not of the place where they currently live. 
And so, yes, we see them as economic participants, but they're also our neighbors and their kids will play with our kids. And eventually they won't even be a they anymore. They'll just be a we. They'll be a part of us. They'll be among us. And then the only differences will just be superficial things like a residual accent or something like that. And so my question about how you approach your work is when you look at the data, are you constantly thinking about the people behind it? And maybe that influences how you approach the data? Or is it maybe the opposite where you try not to think about that because you want to be dispassionate? Or is it something in between? I think the answer to that question is similar for me and for people who, for example, study leukemia. I think uh, sometimes one's motivations are about individual people and concerns for them. But when you get to the actual data and the science and the analysis, you're just absorbed in that. And, and sometimes you even actually forget about the original motivations, which in a way can seem a shame, but in a way is a positive thing because then your analysis is not influenced. I want to read to you a quote from this report. It's an interesting quote because it gets at the complexities involved when we're talking about immigration. And at the end, I'm going to ask you why we shouldn't just lapse into a kind of scholarly nihilism given all these complexities. Okay, so here's the quote. The effects of immigration have to be isolated from many other influences that shape local and national economies and the relative wages of different groups of workers. Firms open and close, people retire, Workers switch jobs, and a stream of native-born job seekers comes of age. Changes occur in technology, global supply chains, international trade, and foreign investment. The inflow of the foreign-born at a given time is, under normal circumstances, a relatively minor factor in the $18 trillion U.S. economy. Unquote. That's so much to consider that I'd imagine that it makes it hard to isolate the relevant variables whenever you're trying to study them, and in particular, to identify their potency, their significance to our way of life and to the broader economy. What do you think about that? Well, we put that in for, for two reasons. And one is the one you're focusing on, which is that you, the reader, have to realize that this is a very difficult topic. And that's the reason why, although the report is a consensus report, we don't write it as though uh, we know all the answers, and here we're just listing all the answers to. But the other reason is actually to point out that the, the in the end, the impact of immigration can't be that enormous, given that everything else that's going on, at least if you're considering a factor like wages. Uh, there's something else that was interesting about the report, which is that, from my understanding, it brought together scholars that don't always necessarily agree on things, right? And I think, if I've understood this, the report was not meant to be ideologically infused in any way. It was not meant to be partisan. Uh, that's right. That's exactly right. And uh, it might also be relevant for some uh, listeners to know that they were not only economists, in fact, on the panel. There were also demographers within the whole group, different opinions. And that's very much the strength of this report, that if we state something, we came to a consensus on it. If we didn't state it, either we knew nothing or people had different views. And when you did have different views, uh, how would you decide what actually would go into the report? Well, that depended. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We did come to a consensus that immigration to the U.S., because it has a very large unskilled component, does reduce the wages of native-born high school dropouts. So we stated that we did not agree on the magnitude of that reduction in wages, and therefore we stated the studies gave the range of values and did not pick our favorite one. So essentially you 
acknowledged the uncertainty around the issue and told people that this is what can be known so far. Uh, we can't really go further than that. The data don't quite justify saying anything more uh, certain than that. That's right. I would distinguish between everyone saying, well, we really don't know, and some people saying we know A and some people saying we know B. In in both cases, we would not come out, obviously, with an answer, but those are two slightly different scenarios. Okay. Well, let's stay with uh, the topic of the impact of immigration on uh, low-skilled native-born workers, because I, I think this is usually the most contentious part of the immigration debate. And there are obvious reasons why. Okay. So we see um, lower skilled workers as, again, the most susceptible to big macroeconomic pressures. So it might be the case, although I don't think this is in the report, it might be the case that a big influx of high skilled workers would reduce the wages of high skilled uh, native born workers, right? But there's going to be less sympathy if the salary of an engineer goes from 160000 to 150000 But if a native-born high school dropout or high school graduate loses his or her job or has his or her wages fall, it's a much bigger problem, right? So can you kind of take us through what that argument looks like right now and what the data tell us? I can. I'd like to, before doing that, emphasize the, the point that the group is in consensus about, which is that overall immigration is beneficial or perhaps even has no effect on the overall economy per capita, but does not have any negative effect per capita. So the only reason that there should be a debate about immigration is because of distributional issues. In other words, although there is a consensus among economists that per capita native income will either increase or have no change in response to immigration, Nobody claims that everybody benefits from immigration. And then, as you say, the question is, well, who is likely to lose? And when we assess overall, is immigration a good thing? It's a subjective weighting of overall, it was good for the economy, but some groups lost. Do we care so much about those groups' welfare that overall we would say immigration is bad, even though on average it helped? And as you just pointed out, the mechanism in the U.S. for likely losers is that there is a lot of unskilled immigration. Those we agreed in the report, those immigrants reduced the wages of native-born high school dropouts. And is that decline enough for us to say we should reduce immigration to help those people rather than either one option would be ignoring the problem or appropriating other resources and using other methods to help those people? which perhaps one should be doing anyway. Did the report, <laughs> by the way, uh, come out with an answer to that, or was that it did left not, to the It reader? did not precisely because this is a subjective question that the panel is no better equipped to uh, assess than uh, any person not on the panel. So we did not try and grapple with that. But that's the background to your question, which I wanted to give. So we do think that the impact of immigration on uh, unskilled native-born is very, very important, but it's in the context of we think that overall immigration is a good thing if you only consider the average. So as we mentioned earlier, we did agree that the wages of the native-born high school dropouts is reduced by immigration. And That group of natives is, however, a shrinking group over time. So that's one thing to to bear in mind. Because more people are graduating from high school. Exactly, exactly. The native-born becoming more and more educated. 
but the the way that the, there are different approaches that one can take to get that result, which is what your your question was. So one approach is using the big variation across different parts of the United States geographically in how many immigrants. Uh, go there and what their share is in the in the population, and so that's been a very popular approach. Is to look over time, comparing, uh, say, states or cities that had big increases in immigration in unskilled, since that's what we're talking about, unskilled immigration compared to ones that had uh, lower increases, and then look: did wages rise more in one uh, area than the other? And bring together actually that information, not just comparing pairwise, but putting together statistically all of the different cities or, or regions of the United States. Even there, there's a bit of a concern with that approach that immigrants go to places where they expect the wages to be rising, for example, so that you might discover that actually more immigrants is associated with higher wages, but the causality is from the rising wages to the rising immigrants and not the reverse. So there's an approach that's uh, become, well, there's a statistical approach, which is longstanding and an application of that in immigration, which has become standard, which attempts to get at some variation in the number of immigrants by region that's not due to changes in the economy, and in particular, using information from where immigrants from particular countries had settled some decades before, and using that as a predictor of where immigrants would go if they wanted to go to places that had established communities from their cultures, uh, something that would be independent of the economy. And you can statistically use that information to make the causality flow from the number of increased immigrants to changes in wages and try and look there. And with these approaches, that's one approach, and one tends to find no impact on average wages of the native-born, but a negative impact on the wages of unskilled most of those papers actually look at the impact of all immigration rather than looking specifically at the impact of unskilled immigration in that particular approach. Quick point of clarification, how do we define skilled versus unskilled? Because that's such a binary distinction. And of course, skills can exist all across a spectrum. So they're not usually defined completely in a binary way. I was doing that for shorthand. Usually we use education so people would look at the impact on high school dropouts versus people with exactly high school or some college or college and above, or sometimes nowadays even that group is split into those with more than college. Uh, However, a a different criticism would be that education doesn't capture perfectly skill, which is perfectly true. To some degree, we also use the amount of experience in the labor market as another marker of experience in a slightly different approach that I haven't described yet. We use education and experience as markers of skill. How does that work? So in that approach, instead of comparing different geographies, we compare different groups of workers where the groups are defined by education and experience. So there you take uh, all different cells where the members of the cell or group are defined by education and experience, look at how the share of immigrants changed over time in that cell, and then look at how wages or perhaps the employment rate of natives with that kind of education experience changed over time. And and there look at the, in this case, it's usually the correlation between the two. In this case, usually we don't use that, or people have not used that statistical approach to deal with the causality problem. So you look at, uh, do uh, uh, the wages of natives with 
say, 10 to 20 years of education and exactly high school, how did that their wages change when given their change in the percent immigrant compared to either less educated or less experienced and so forth? Yeah, what I what I like about this description is that it once again raises the issue of all the different variables that have to be taken into account when we're talking about immigration. And I, I often get frustrated by debates on immigration because people like to point to uh, the conclusions of this or that study and then necessarily say that those conclusions will apply to every new situation where you might have a large group of new low-skilled immigrants or high-skilled immigrants or whatever. In other words, that it's very difficult, I think, to draw definitive conclusions that are universally applicable. Well, that's right. So that's something that we say in the report is that the impact depends on the type of immigrants, the nature of the economy, which means it changes over time or depending on what economy you're talking about. So that's one factor. Uh, Another thing to think about when one looks at results of this type of study is that in academic studies, we typically report the impact of a certain amount of immigration. So, for example, what is the impact on wages of a flow of immigration that's big enough to increase the labor force by 1%, for example, then you need to, if you're thinking about a particular episode of immigration, say over the last 20 years, you need to multiply that number by the amount of immigration that there actually was in the last 20 years. So I think that's something that could mislead the non-expert when looking at the results. When we say that the effect is big or small, we're usually talking about in response to the same amount of immigration. So we've usually adjusted for that. And then, of course, the the impact will be bigger in regions with more immigrants or in times with more immigrants. Can we talk now about uh, your recent paper with Michael Clemens, which is on very much the question of the impact of low-skilled immigrants on uh, low-skilled native-born? And there's a kind of a long story to this paper, uh, so we have to go back in time a little bit. This concerns an episode that happened in 1980 when about 120,000 Cubans were essentially sent to Miami, uh, or they were let go, if you will, by Fidel Castro, uh, and they were dumped off not one boat, but a series of boats into Miami. And so the idea there was that it provided a kind of natural experiment where you had a very sudden influx of low-skilled immigrants. David Card did a a famous paper about this that came out quite a while ago, but he essentially found that there was no effect on low-skilled native-born workers in Miami from this large influx of Cubans. Later on, uh, an economist named George Borjas, who is I think maybe too simplistically labeled sometimes an immigration restrictionist, uh, but he's skeptical of low-skilled immigration and its impact or its favorable impact on low-skilled native-born workers. He thinks that there are trade-offs here and that, in fact, there can be quite a sizable effect. And so he did a paper concluding the opposite of CARD. He found that there was actually quite a large decline in the wages of native-born high school dropouts in Miami. Your paper with Michael Clemens found that actually the Borjas conclusion was skewed by a statistical quirk, that there was a change in the way that high school and high school dropouts were measured around the time of this episode. And essentially, I think uh, you brought it back to the card conclusion, which was that there was very little impact on the native born. Uh, Can you give us a sense of 
what we should take from that paper and whether or not you're totally certain about the conclusions, because this back and forth has been going on for so long. <laughs> well, let me give a bit of background first about why David Card wrote this paper to begin with, because as we've discussed, it can be difficult to tease out uh, the effect of immigration changes which are happening somewhat gradually uh, from everything else that's happening in the economy. David was the first person to have the idea, let's examine a case where there's a sudden arrival of immigrants. And because it's both sudden and unexpected, you would expect to be able to pinpoint when the changes should happen, if there are any in the labor market, and their magnitude should be actually larger than if the same number of people had come spread over a, a longer period of time or if it had been anticipated. And that's the reason that, that he wrote uh, that paper. And there have been a few other papers uh, in that same vein. Now, you need also to remember when thinking about the results here what the distinction I made before between talking about a given amount of, of immigration and multiplying that by the amount of immigration that there actually was in your case. So this was a case where, at least compared to Miami, it was a very large amount of immigration. Uh, David Card, since he found not much effect at all, obviously he found little per immigrant and little for the overall episode. Uh, it turns out that, that, that George Borjas's paper finds both big overall effects, but also big when you scale by the number of immigrants. So he, his paper does find just big effects, no matter which way you look at them. Now, Michael Clemens and I have one of at least two, if not three, papers calling into question George's re-examination of the data. But I think that both Michael and I would be comfortable with saying, and, and indeed the other authors, that it's actually just very difficult, despite the apparently advantageous features of this episode, to work out its impact. And the reason is the data, but this is not a criticism of the people who gather the data. It's rather just a, a recognition that if you're looking at one city and then subgroups of people within the city, particularly in a time just before the sample sizes of the main data sets were expanded, it's going to be very hard to see what's going on. And so I think actually the simplest observation is that it's very difficult to know what the impact was, unfortunately. Michael and I are not the first people, as I mentioned, to point out some problems with, with the George Borjas reanalysis. He used a different data set from the original card paper. He also did not examine the impact on women, so he dropped women. And this is not in itself bad, but he looked at a different group from David Card. So he looked at high school dropouts. David Card had looked at high school and below. So George Borjas's uh, use of a, a different data set, a different subgroup of education and men only and not women were already known to explain the differences between his results and, and David Card's before Michael and I wrote our paper. It seemed in some ways to us easier to understand our criticism than the earlier ones, but our particular criticism has to do, as you said, with a change in way in the way the data were gathered around that time. In particular, there was a concern that arose right around the time of the Mario Boatlift, the episode we're talking about, that poorly educated black men were not being covered properly in the official government data sets. And just at this time, the government data gatherers improved their ways of finding out 
who was living in the households, even if they were living there for brief amounts of time. So the concern was in the data set that's being used uh, for this episode, there's one household member who reports what's going on in the household. And the concern was that this was often a single mother who had a partner who was there for perhaps some of the year, not other parts of the year. And that person was actually not being captured in any household. And so the, a series of questions were introduced to, to make sure that these people were actually captured as part of the household. And this led in the Miami data to an increase amongst high school dropouts in the share that were black because more black high school dropout men, and this was only true for men, so not for women, uh, were being found. And even amongst high school dropouts, black men have lower wages and therefore adding these black men pulled down the wages of the group on whom we were studying the impact. Now, notice I didn't say natives because this is also a time where one couldn't see if the people were native-born or not. So the share of blacks went up in part because the data set was, or the data gathering process was changed so as to find more of them. Another factor was actually at the same time there's a lot of Haitian refugees who arrived where there's the same issue, mostly males, high school dropouts. So now I think I understand why you arrived at an essentially agnostic conclusion uh, after looking at all this. So I think to, to boil all that down into one thing or into one sentence, maybe a few sentences, there was a change in the data gathering process introduced by the government statisticians, and that change ended up being reflected in Borjas's work as an actual change rather than as a new statistical approach, and that skewed the results of his work. That's exactly right, and that helps us explain why the fact that he didn't use women was so important, because uh, w women were not experiencing this change in the data gathering process, and some other differences between his results and cards could be explained by this. And so we, we come to the conclusion that one cannot conclude, as Borjas did, that there were big negative impacts on the wages of the, I'll say, natives for, for short. In Miami, we don't actually come out and claim they were zero. We claim that there were, that you cannot find evidence of big negative impacts. Okay. I have one final conceptual question on the issue of low-skilled immigration and the impact on low-skilled native-born workers. Often the debate is positioned as um, a two-sided issue where you have economic theory, supply and demand on the one hand, which would at least suggest, maybe powerfully suggest, that when you have uh, a new group of people with a similar skill set as the people who are there, that raises the supply of that type of laborer and therefore it'll lower the wages that they can receive. Again, supply and demand. And I'm not getting into the longer-term consequences, just in the short term. And I think that sounds sensible. There's another side, which also frankly sounds sensible and which is often associated with an economist named Giovanni Perry, um, which is that there are complementarities between the low-skilled immigrants and the low-skilled native-born workers, and that the immigrants will tend to take different kinds of jobs, even different kinds of low-skilled jobs than the workers who are already there, than the native-born workers, and that because of that, 
there is a much more subdued effect on the low-skilled native-born because they're not directly competing. And there might be some overlaps, but those overlaps are less big than maybe you would think given just the kind of supply and demand approach. Where do you stand on that? Where did the paper come down on that? And do you think there's maybe even room for both methods? I think those are not in, in contradiction. And the report, I'm not sure if we have a passage that deals directly with that, but I think the report would be consistent with, with what I'm going to say. You're right that there's a difference between the long run and the short run. What's not so clear is what is the long run and what is the short run. So clearly short run is the Mario boat lift arrival, and that's partly why it was studied. Most immigration is happening over a longer period of time, and firms have time to anticipate and adjust what they're doing in advance. So both of the approaches that you talked about or schools of thought uh, are correct. It's just when do they come into play. So if you have a sudden Mario boat lift, initially you will not, in the first, say, year, you might not yet have uh, the sorts of adaptation strategies that natives can adopt that Perry talks about. So there may not have been time yet for them to move into occupations requiring more communication and language skills, for example, which they will eventually do to some degree. And papers like Perry's or analysis like Perry's came out of the consensus finding that we talk about in the report that there's no effect on average wages. So people start to think, well, what, what sorts of mechanisms could be dampening the effect on average wages? And one answer is that some people were already complementary with low-skilled immigrants, for example. If you're someone who supervises people working in jobs where you don't need English and then suddenly a lot of immigrants come who don't speak English, expanding that group, uh, then your services will be more in demand and your wages could rise. But then there could be other people who are natives who are originally working in those jobs that didn't require English that may end up in a different job where they do use their English. Now, a bit of a difference in perception, I think, between economists and people in the real world is we portray that as an unambiguously good thing, or we seem to, that the natives were able to avoid competition with the immigrants by taking these more communication-intensive jobs. If you're the actual person changing jobs, you probably didn't actually want to change jobs, or you might have done it in the first place. And that's going to be disruptive for you, even if in the end you ended up equally well off. You, you may have preferred to remain well off in the old job. That's interesting. So from an economic standpoint, we might look at it as increased specialization or even the kind of abstract concept, but that's still plausible despite being abstract, that low-skilled immigration incentivizes native-born workers to upskill into slightly higher-skilled jobs. We might look at it and say, well, that's great for the economy, but if you're the person who's lost a job and then you have to go through a new training program, et cetera, et cetera, it might introduce some hardships into your life for a little while, even though eventually you really might be better off doing that. But I should just go ahead and ask about that. What do you think about this concept of upskilling and whether or not immigration does in fact have that impact? I think it, it happens. Uh, Giovanni Perry has one particularly convincing paper on this for uh, lower skilled uh, native born workers. He has another one on uh, high skill native born workers also going into more communication intensive uh, occupations. I myself have a, a, paper, a related paper, but that's a little bit different that shows that the native born are more likely to graduate from high school when there's more immigration. 
and that the channel for that seems to be wanting to avoid later competition with immigrant dropouts in the labor force. So I, th- I think this is definitely a channel. I want to point out one, one other thing when we were discussing this short-run painful churn for potentially long-run gain. That actually applies to, say, technological progress. It applies to trade. Most th- things that imply growth, growth really implies uh, churning and disruption and uh, can be unpleasant in the short run or for the people involved. Yeah. Okay, so Jennifer, I, I now want to read from some of the facts in the report itself that give a sense of immigration trends over the last 20 years, and then get your thoughts on that. So from the report, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing here, but immigrants climbed from about 9% of the population in 1995 to about 13% of the population by 2014. To put that in, I guess, easier to understand terms, that's roughly one out of every 11 people to one out of almost every eight people. Okay. Uh, in overall numbers or in absolute numbers, that's 24.5 million immigrants to about 42.5 million out of a total population of, I think, 320 million now. I'm not exactly sure, but it's, it's right around there. Um, but as a share of the labor force, immigrants went from 11% to 16% in that same amount of time. So again, in the last 20 years. Now, the pace of legally admitted immigrants per year became higher at about 2001, and that's continued. We've been absorbing about a million legally admitted immigrants per year. But in terms of undocumented or unauthorized immigrants, I think this might surprise a lot of people, but the level has been roughly flat since the late 2000s, hovering at around uh, 11 million and change. So every year, about three or 400,000 people leave and three or 400,000 people come in. And so it'll fluctuate within a range of a couple of hundred thousand sometimes, but it's actually been flat after a period of steadily climbing. Can you talk about whether or not historically that is a lot of immigration for a country to absorb? uh, And I guess how you think the American economy has in fact absorbed that immigration? Uh, That's a a big question, but the first thing I'd like to do is to put the immigration to the U.S. in international context. So the U.S., because it's a very big country, admits a lot of immigrants in absolute number, but in terms of a share of the population or even the labor force, compared to other high-income countries, the U.S. is right in the middle of the pack. So partly for historical reasons, the U.S. thinks of itself as a high-immigration country, it's probably more accurate to think of it as a middle immigration country. So Only if, high in absolute numbers, but not exactly. in, as a share of the uh, total population. Uh, who, who, by the way, is higher? So lots of countries are higher. Of the slightly larger countries, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada are considerably higher. Depends exactly how you measure it, but you can think of Australia as having about double the immigration uh, relative to its population that the U.S. does. And in terms of who's similar to the U.S., Germany is actually similar to the U.S. And in fact, if you look at the famous year 2015 when Germany received so many asylum seekers, uh, Germany actually in inflows had about triple compared to its population that, uh, that the U.S. did, although that was an outlying year. In terms of the, uh, the mechanisms of adjustment, there are quite a few. So one is that the sorts of goods and services that the U.S. produces are influenced by immigration. So one example is that uh, the apparel industry remained in the U.S. for longer than you would have thought. Because of unskilled immigration, it remained worthwhile for longer to make clothes in the U.S., 
despite uh, the availability of uh, either offshoring locations or new technology to automate things. Because of lower wages that were paid to uh, immigrant workers. That's right. Technology then is another channel of adaptation. So there are different technologies that one can use and which one one chooses as an employer depend on what labor force is at hand. So another perfect example of this is agriculture. So uh, technology is progressing quite fast in agriculture, but not nearly as fast as it would have done were there not a big supply of agricultural workers from abroad. Is it possible, though, that the adjustment there could have also come from trade? In other words, if the immigrant laborers who worked in the agricultural sector couldn't be found because there were lower migration levels, uh, that the U.S. would have ended up importing the same foods or the same goods instead of producing them at home. It wouldn't necessarily have been an adjustment via better you know, productivity growth or better technological adjustment. It seems like that also is a possibility, but that we don't quite know what the counterfactual would look like there. Absolutely. And that's Im- implicit in the changing of the sector. So the apparel industry, for example, if you don't make it in the U.S., you import it from abroad, uh, either from companies that are related to U.S. companies or not related to U.S. companies. In the case of agriculture specifically, some of the things grown in the southern United States could be grown in Mexico. It's interesting to see that there the preferred evolution seems to be automation rather than uh, importing. I want to make one other point about uh, technological progress that's slightly at a tangent, but it's very important and we haven't mentioned it yet. It's not quite an adjustment mechanism, but one of the ways in which immigration can influence the U.S. is through innovation. And this has been a subject of my own research. So if you increase actually a population generally, but especially if you increase the population of highly educated people you're likely to have more innovation, just more people, more ideas, more education, more ideas. And innovation is one of the important components to growth in the economy. So the others are just increases in the number of workers, which immigrants influence directly too, as do native fertility rates. Another is adopting new capital, so machines and computers. And that's something that firms will do when they anticipate having a larger population. And then finally, technological progress, which is, I've shown, influenced by high-skilled immigration, that influences actually not just the level of GDP, but its growth. So it's something that will continue and compound in the future. So I found that immigrants increase patenting per capita. This is something we do talk about in the report as well. And that we would expect not just to give a one-time increase in GDP, but to have the growth rate increase, so increases in GDP for year after year. And that's something that could, in principle, offset declines in wages for the least skilled. So they may have the wages decline directly from competition from low-skilled immigrants. It could be offset by this faster growth. From what we've seen in the study so far, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, what's interesting to me about that is that to use, again, just a simple supply and demand framework, if you have more high-skilled immigrants, okay, you have more specialization, right? That just seems like an obvious result. Uh, And so it's not the case that Econ 101 fails you every time and that you need to go much beyond it. Sometimes the simple stuff you learned early on still applies. That's exactly right. And in fact, there was a consensus um, for the report and a consensus more generally amongst economists, as I said, that GDP per native is unlikely to be hurt and will likely gain from immigration 
and they will gain more when the immigration is different from the native workers, when the immigrants have different skills for the reason that you gave. When the skills are different, people specialize more in what they're best at. That makes the economy more efficient. That means that there's a bigger pie to share amongst everyone, including the natives. I have an issue I want to introduce here that I suspect is just really hard to study and maybe we don't know a lot about, but that's always fascinated me, which is the relationship between the effects of immigration and economic slack, in particular in the labor market, but also just in the economy in general. And here's how I would set it up. Very often, especially when talking, for instance, about the agricultural sector, advocates of more immigration will say, well, a lot of times these lower skilled immigrants take jobs that Americans don't want to do. And then the retort always comes back from restrictionists or maybe from people who just disagree with the argument that, well, yeah, but at what wage? And so the idea is that if those uh, immigrants aren't available to do the work, but the people who own the farms or the people who own the companies would just raise the wages, then Americans would in fact take those jobs, even if the labor is very arduous, uh, or even if it's not what they had hoped for, because the compensation has been increased, right? And maybe that argument applies in times of large economic slack. So if there are, in fact, a lot of native-born workers who are out of work, who need jobs, and they need a nudge to take a job that they never expected they would have to take, and so maybe they would take that job if it offered a much higher wage, right? Even if it wasn't the prestigious job that they grew up thinking they would get. And in that sense, maybe they're competing directly in some sense with uh, low-skilled immigrants. But In a time of low economic slack, when the economy is at full employment, it seems like all you'd be doing by restricting the presence of immigrants is pulling resources from one sector to another. So yes, it's the case that if those immigrants aren't available, that maybe the employers would raise their wages, right? And then that would have a kind of an effect up the chain. But somebody actually has to do the work. So in terms of real resources, all you've done is shrunk the overall economic capacity of the United States, economic potential of the U.S. economy, right? And I don't actually know whether or not this is something that's in the back of researchers' minds precisely because it's so hard to isolate those instances um, where this would apply, but I just wanted to ask what you thought of that and sort of where you come down on this issue of, well, there may not be Uh, Right now, jobs that are being filled because they used to be done by immigrants and now they're not available. But if they just raised the wages, uh, Americans would take those jobs and then the problem is solved. It seems to me like the argument is so much more complicated than that uh, and so much more subtle. Well, I'd I'd start by saying that economists would not support this argument about natives don't want to do the jobs. We would definitely embrace the second line of reasoning that you gave about the wage being important. There's some wage at which I would be happy to pick strawberries and uh, bolster my, my bank account. It's not that I have something in principle against picking strawberries. In terms of the question of the effect of the business cycle, in other words, uh, what happens in upturns compared to downturns in in terms of the interaction with immigration. We alluded to it a couple of times in the report, but there's actually no empirical study of that. But what you're talking about gets back to the point that 
if you have fewer immigrants, you will have a smaller economy. When is that relevant? Well, it's relevant in a in a boom. So yes, if you're just talking about the overall size of the economy and there's a boom and firms are demanding a lot of workers, you can expand output by allowing more immigration. Um, and so if you thought about actually just having completely free immigration in the boom, uh, a lot more immigrants would come because demand would be a lot uh, higher in, in a bust, uh, not nearly as many would come with the, the net and might even be outflows. Indeed, that w- that would all feed into just the overall size of the economy. And so I think it's simple if we're just thinking about the overall size of the economy, yes. Uh, let's talk now about the difference in the economic impact between legally admitted uh, immigrants and undocumented uh, workers. How does the legality specifically affect how they influence uh, the U.S. economy? A lot of the thinking here is theoretical rather than empirical analysis because for obvious reasons we don't have good data on who's documented and who is not. But we think that the the impact uh, would be a little bit different because of the precarious legal status and therefore the low bargaining power of undocumented workers. So suppose that you have some a group of undocumented and documented workers who are otherwise indistinguishable you would think that the employer would have some power over the undocumented worker and would be able to pay them less, and that would put potentially more downward pressure on natives' wages than the legal immigration would because those workers would have a stronger bargaining position and would get higher wages. Now, in practice, I think we have been unable to empirically establish that. Okay. One other change that's been observed uh, in the last decade or so is that after a very long time during which most immigrants were coming from uh, Latin American countries and especially Mexico, uh, now it seems like annually there are more flows of immigrants coming from Asian countries. In terms of uh, the different skill sets, high skill versus low skill, uh, how would we expect that shift to have an effect on the U.S. economy? As you mentioned earlier, immigration has been increasing generally to the U.S. and immigration of both uh, very low-skilled and very high-skilled and, to a lesser extent, middle-skilled people have all been increasing. But the immigration that's been increasing the fastest is the skilled immigration of people with college or more. And one thing that means is that the more skilled immigrants are likely to do better when they come to the U.S. So if that's something that you're interested in that's relevant to know for the future, although so far in our studies, which mostly compare immigrants of a particular education with with natives of the same education, find that immigrants have been assimilating more slowly, but that's comparing people usually with the same education. But the other thing is that the, the calculus of who's affected amongst the natives will change as immigration switches to being more skilled. So you'd expect there to be more pressure on the wages of, of skilled natives and relative to the unskilled, which from a distributional point of view is a good thing. Again, going back to if overall immigration is good on average for natives, when you're assessing it, you're more worried about wage declines of the least skilled people with the lowest wages to begin with than you are about wages of people earning good wages. Sure. Uh, we haven't spoken as much about high-skilled immigration as low-skilled immigration, uh, in part because there's just a lot more agreement that high-skilled immigration tends to have an unambiguously favorable effect on the economy. You mentioned the uh, innovation gains earlier. We haven't spoken at all, though, about the impact of new immigrants on recent 
already arrived immigrants, uh, where in fact the substitutability of the two would probably be the closest. That's right. I think that uh, most economists, and we agreed in the report, think that the people worst off in the face of immigration are the recent immigrants. So today's immigrants, the people they're most similar to in the labor market are yesterday's immigrants. And there's actually not as much study of recent immigrants as of the native born, but the the studies that there are find that they definitely have wage declines uh, in the face of later immigration. And probably of the studies, the biggest wage declines are found for recent immigrants. I don't know if this was uh, in the report or not. I don't remember. But there was uh, an interesting paper a few years ago finding that low-skilled immigration can have a positive effect on native-born working mothers because essentially the immigrants are a source of childcare. And of course, as we know, anybody who has kids would know that childcare costs are quite, quite burdensome. This seems to me like an interesting finding in part because it's a kind of overlooked finding that people wouldn't always take into account, right? Uh, When we look at, say, the substitutability of low-skilled immigrants uh, and the low-skilled native-born Something like this is sort of an interesting like next iteration of how we should think of the impact of immigrants. I'm wondering if you think there are any broader lessons that we can take from that. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, the immigrants have been shown by Patricia Cortez especially to lower the price of services. And those are services that are often taken advantage of by high-skilled natives. So it's another example of where the benefits might actually go of immigration, especially low-skilled immigration, would go to better off uh, native-born rather than less well-off. And this ties back into uh, your question from before about who would do jobs if there weren't uh, immigrants. I think that's one where it's very useful to think about specific occupations. So there are some occupations in the U.S. filled by low-skilled immigrants, that if you go to Europe, you see that actually no one does those at all. And so one example actually is uh, porters. If you want people to carry your bags at train stations or airports, uh, you can actually do that in the U.S. That just doesn't happen in Europe. (laughs) So there are some occupations that literally disappear if you don't have people willing to or available to work at low wages to do them. Now, on the other hand, there can be cases where instead the occupation is automated. So, for example, we talked already about agriculture. My co-author, Michael Clemens, along with Ethan Lewis, they have a paper looking at the end of the Bracero program in the 60s, which brought low-skilled Mexican agricultural workers to the U.S., when it ended, you might think, oh, well, so lots of uh, native-born must have gone. We still have agriculture. must have been native-born Americans who went into the, those jobs. But it seems that instead there was just a ramp up in the automation. But then there would be yet other jobs where, indeed, the, if immigrants didn't come, the wage would rise enough that natives would go back into them. So it really depends on the occupation that you're talking about. Sure. I have uh, one other question about the relationship then between uh, productivity growth and low-skilled immigration. And it's very similar to my question earlier about economic slack. If anything, it's it's almost the same question, right? So what you just mentioned is the idea that if you uh, restrict immigrants who can work in a given sector, in some cases, that'll increase the automation of those jobs in that sector. And that is also known as productivity growth. It seems to me like in an economy that's at full employment or that's working at its potential, right? Again, that automation would be applied to the wrong sector. In other words, if you have 
lower costs because of immigration, then if the economy is doing really well, you'll still have automation all over the place in the economy, right? You just won't have it there because it is still the lower cost alternatives. But that may not apply in periods where the economy's not at full potential. In that case, you might just get an improvement in productivity growth. Um, but I struggle very often to understand the trade-offs here. Like It seems to me like there are so many moving parts that it's just hard to know how to think about it. I think if you have trouble thinking about what determines productivity or why it's changing as it is over time, you're in in good company. <laughs> as given that that's been a topic of uh, this podcast so often, I I totally agree with you. That's right. So yes, in, in, indeed, you're you're going back to what are the components of GDP growth? They could come from more workers, more capital, or change in technology, technological progress. And it's a question of which is the cheapest to do, because technology doesn't change just randomly either. It's when inventors see a need in the economy, that's when they decide to develop their product. And uh, so people will work harder at mechanizing agriculture. When there's a combination of the economy booming and a restriction on immigration, they'll work less hard at uh, this automation if they think that there's an unlimited supply of low-skilled workers around to, to, to do the job. So there's, there's different ways that uh, you, you can keep GDP growing. And in the longer term, automation might be the better one, but it all depends on which one is, is cheaper to do. And I should say also that we've been talking here as though we only care about the US, but of course, one of the big things to think about with, with migration is the benefits that it brings to immigrants themselves. And so automation, you could imagine it might be better for Americans, but then it would cut off that income for Mexicans. So that's something you need to think about as right. well. Yeah, to be clear, we're, we're focusing on the U.S. economy because this report that we've been discussing is also about the U.S. economy. But absolutely, a lot of the principles that we're discussing here, I think, are universal ones. And also, it doesn't mean that we should neglect to at least mention that there are more cosmopolitan considerations here, that in fact, many of the benefits of immigration, if not the vast majority of them, I don't know if you would agree with this, go to the immigrants themselves. And to the extent that you care about America also being a place that improves the living standards of people outside of the country or who move to the country or who one day will be American citizens but aren't yet there, that is also very much a valid consideration. Um, so, yeah, again, we're focusing on the impact of the U.S. economy because that's the report. But I, your point is extremely well taken, uh, and I totally agree with it. One final thing, we've spoken so much here about immigrants as a source of labor, as either a complement or a substitute for native-born labor and the potential effects on the labor market. I haven't yet brought up the idea, although we've alluded to it, of immigrants as also consumers, source of sources of demand. And it applies all over the place, normal consumer goods, obviously, but also they can have an impact on the housing market in places where you know the housing market has collapsed and things like that. And there have been kind of a lot of interesting studies on that issue. Uh, is there anything in particular that, that you would emphasize about this idea that immigrants are also of course, because I said earlier, they're people, they're not just economic inputs. Uh, in many cases, they are themselves sources of demand. That's right. And I, I mentioned that in a sort of abstract sense when I was explaining how it could be that wages would not fall, in fact, because immigrants also add to demand. But more in the context of your question, the report does talk about the housing market. And it talks about the fact that since the 1990s, immigrants have spread over a much 
broader geographic uh, range in the U.S. uh, than before. So immigration used to be really focused on kind of five states in the U.S. And now immigrants have moved not only to non-traditional cities, but also even into rural areas. And it's especially in these latter cases that people have been focusing on the fact that they've actually been sort of keeping towns alive that might otherwise have withered away. Uh, And we talk about that in the report. It's not actually clear that if you only care about economics, you care about the survival of small towns. But if you care about things other than economics, you may very well. And indeed, uh, that's been a a phenomenon that's been studied also by sociologists of immigrants coming into rural areas and and really uh, rejuvenating and regenerating the, the town life. There's an interesting sentence uh, in the report as well that I want to read here because it sort of is like the flip side of the immigrants compete for the wages of the native-born, right? Here's the sentence, um, which might strike some people who've been listening to this conversation as kind of curious, and that's why it's so interesting. Here it is, quote, To the extent that immigrants flow disproportionately to where wages are rising and local labor demand is strongest, they help equalize wage growth geographically making labor markets more efficient, and reducing slack. It's exactly the flip side, but maybe with a more positive spin on the idea that uh, immigrants compete with the native-born for wages. That's exactly right, and it's funny because that's in a somewhat different part of the paper from the the main uh, theoretical analysis. And you're right, they're two sides of of the same coin. So if the economy is efficient, the total size of the pie is bigger but if that ha- happens through competition uh, induced by immigration, that means that some people will, some native-born will lose in the quest for greater overall efficiency and the bigger pie. So that's not so explicitly opposing the total size of the pie versus uh, the outcomes for some people who might be losers in, uh, even as the pie goes grows larger. If we had to put together a list of elements of immigration economics that most immigration researchers have a consensus on, right? So even if you might have an argument with, say, George Borjas about the impact on native-born high school dropouts of low-skilled immigrants, you might agree on the following things, right? What do you think would go on that list? Let me just bring up one thing that we haven't talked about, and the reason we haven't talked about it is I think you're doing a whole different podcast on this, but we haven't talked about the net contribution of immigrants to the the federal or state or local budgets. the fiscal impact. And uh, we won't get into that in detail because we're going to do that elsewhere, but this is something that I think looms slightly larger for non-economists than economists, but that's one additional factor to take into account that we haven't mentioned yet, and the report goes into that, and I think one summary is it's extremely complicated to work out at least what will happen in the future, as it always is. The future is very difficult to predict. You're you're referring specifically to the fiscal impact. In other words, the question of whether or not immigrants or certain subcategories of immigrants pay more money into the system via taxes and via their economic contributions than they take out of the system via transfers and via spending on health care or retirement benefits and things of that nature. Exactly. So I just wanted to mention that as a factor to be considered in the list that I'll now give of things that that we agree on. So we would all agree that uh, GDP is increased by immigration. We would all agree that GDP per capita and GDP per native is increased by immigration if you ignore 
the fiscal side or if there were no welfare system. So the, the theory that goes behind that, and that theory there actually is no welfare system. What we would not quite agree with, so for example, uh, George Bohas has said he thinks that the fiscal contribution is negative and exactly offsets the, or more or less offsets the gain in GDP per native, so it comes out as zero. But because he said it's about zero, we would therefore all agree that GDP per native doesn't fall. So that would be another consensus point. We have consensus in the report that average wages are more or less unchanged by immigration. We have consensus in the report that the wages of high school dropouts fall, but no consensus on how much. We have consensus that there is occupational upgrading of natives to avoid competition with immigrants. We have consensus that uh, technologies used by firms change in order to take advantage of the labor force available and that that's one of the reasons that there's no impact on wages. We have consensus that the high-skilled immigrants increase innovation, which should increase growth per capita. That's it. That's one heck of a list. Yeah, that's quite a list already. I'm, that might be. I might be getting to the end of the <laughs> list. I, I might have forgotten some things, but that's most of the list. Sure. Jennifer Hunt, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And that is the end of my conversation with Jennifer Hunt. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. And that is plus one country code because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. And to get show notes for this episode and all prior episodes, go to ft.com forward slash alphachat. Leave us a review, please, on Apple Podcasts, formerly at iTunes. We really do see every single rating and review there, and we appreciate them all. I'm on Twitter, at Cardiff Garcia. And finally, speaking of the economic impact of immigration, I can tell you that Alpha Chat's comparative advantage very much is Amy Keene, our excellent Canadian producer and editor. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.